These are the words of Solomon, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and these are the words that Solomon pens. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and have slaves that were born in my house. I also had great possession of herds and flocks, more than anyone who had come before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great. And surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done. And the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold... All was vanity, and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. I want to encourage you to take notes this morning, whether you have a copy of the chapel bulletin in front of you, or you have a scrap piece of paper, I want to encourage you to take notes. I think you'll listen better if you do. If you're taking notes, write this down. Point number one, we're going to evaluate or look at Solomon's purpose. Solomon gives us a purpose statement in verse one. Solomon's purpose he gives to us in verse one. Look there at your Bible. Solomon writes, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. And so you see what Solomon does here. The very opening line, Solomon begins his pleasure quest with self-talk. It's a bad idea, by the way. Solomon did not uh, seek any other counsel, didn't seek any other wisdom. He begins his his pleasure quest, his happiness quest, with self-talk. And what does he say to himself? Well, he says, come now, come now, and I will test you with pleasure. The word test there. And the Hebrew, it indicates that Solomon is conducting an experiment. He's conducting the experiment, and he's making a very deliberate, pointed attempt to learn something by way of experience. Solomon wants to experience pleasure. He wants to experience happiness. And he's going to try everything under the sun to fill that cup of pleasure and happiness. He's going to do it by way of personal experience. The word pleasure there, he says, come now, I will test you. Test you with what? Test you with pleasure. The word pleasure there carries with it the idea of the good life. 
I mean, you can almost picture here in your mind Solomon rubbing his hands together at the sheer prospect of the endless delights that he is going to pursue. Solomon is like the wanderer in the U2 song uh, written for Johnny Cash. These lyrics, I went out there in search of experience to taste and to touch and to feel as much as a man can before he repents. Solomon became an experiential hedonist. A hedonist is just a person that sees pleasure as being ultimate. They seek pleasure as the absolute, ultimate, highest, pinnacle part of life. Choosing to make personal happiness their main gain, their main purpose. In a perverse reversal of the first answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism... Solomon made his chief end to glorify himself and enjoy himself forever. But what are we called as Christians to do? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Today's world is pleasure mad. Millions of people will pay almost any amount of money to buy experiences and temporarily escape the burdens of life. Most Americans today experience more pleasure than most of the people in the history of the world, yet in in spite of all that we have, in spite of all that we have accumulated, in spite of all of our prosperity, or maybe because of it, we still suffer from poverty of soul. I mean, we have everything. And if I don't have it, Amazon can get it to me in 48 hours. With everything, at the click of a button, at the simple request, and yet we still suffer from poverty of soul. The taste of pleasure has grown our appetite for this world far beyond satisfaction. Augustine once said, where your pleasure is, there is your treasure. And where your treasure is, there is your heart. And where your heart is, there is your happiness. Where your heart is... There is your happiness. Calvin follows and he says, While all men seek after happiness, scarcely one in a hundred looks for it in God. I mean, we all have in our souls, in our hearts, the the inboard wiring, the desire to long for, search out for happiness and pleasure, yet Calvin says scarcely one in a hundred seeks for it in God. At the end of the day, we all order our lives around a singular premise. And yes, I'm talking to you and I'm talking to me. We are going to see ourselves very clearly in the mirror here. Every single one of us, without exception, orders our life around a singular premise. That singular premise, to be happy. To be happy. The French mathematician Blaise Pascal once said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they use, this is all to the same end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it. It is the same desire in both. It is the desire to be happy. This is the motive of every man even those who hang themselves. Everything we do is aimed 
at the search for happiness. Matter of fact, just about everything you've done, just about everything I've done so far today has been to make yourself and myself happy. Here are just a few examples here. You may have hit the snooze button one or two extra times this morning to get a few extra minutes of sleep. Why did you do that? Because you thought it would make you happy. You sipped a cup of coffee this morning as the fog of sleep wore off your body. Why did you do that? Because it made you happy. You fed yourself. Some of you poured little crispy things from a box. Some of you got up and made a meal this morning. Why did you do that? Because it made you happy. You dressed yourself. You picked out the clothes you picked out. Why? Because that pair of clothes made you happy. You managed your family the best you could this morning to keep the chaos to a minimum. Why did you do that? Because less chaos makes you happy. I mean, you can keep going on and on and on here. We long for and oftentimes live for happiness and pleasure. Our desire to be happy is behind the entertainment we seek. Our desire to be happy is behind the education path that we walk down. Our desire to be happy is behind the jobs that we hold. The desire to be happy is behind the relationships that we pursue, the purchases that we make, and the list keeps going on and on and on and on. Why do you do what you do? Because you think it will make you happy. It's the quest for pleasure. It's the quest for pleasure. We plan and dream about our lives, and we order them toward a specific end. Again, that end is to be happy. But, listen to me here, friends. If we seek happiness and pleasure as an end to themselves we will always be left empty. Solomon is not saying, our creator God does not say, that there is anything intrinsically evil in happiness or pleasure. Happiness and pleasure are not the problem. The problem is when we seek happiness and pleasure as pinnacle, as ultimate, because they can never do for you what you ask of them to do. Every time I marry a young couple, I've got two or three uh, young couples, a couple of them are here this morning, that are on the dock to be married. I will stand at the altar on their wedding day and stare into both of their eyes and remind them that if you ask of marriage to provide for you ultimate happiness, joy, satisfaction, pleasure, or fulfillment. You are asking of marriage something that it cannot and was never intended to do. And you'll be left disillusioned, you'll be left disappointed, you'll be left disheartened. Does marriage produce a ton of joy? Absolutely it does. Does marriage make us happy? Yes, it does. And that's not to be negated. We're not devaluing that. I'm just saying, don't buy it as ultimate. Don't buy it as ultimate. Solomon tells us that pleasure-seeking cannot quench man's spiritual thirst. A former actress and singer, Bridget Bardot, once said, I've been happy, very rich, very beautiful, much adulated, very famous, and yet very unhappy. 
How in the world? Harrison Ford once said this, being happy is something that you have to learn. I often surprise myself by saying, wow, this is it. I guess I'm happy. I've got a home that I love, a career that I love. I'm even feeling more and more at peace within myself. That's a bad idea, by the way, to feel more and more at peace with yourself. No, there is no peace with self until there's peace with God. Nor is there peace with man before there is peace with God. Ford goes on and he says, If there's something else to happiness, let me know, for I am ambitious for that too. I have everything. And yet something in me feels a sense of dissatisfaction, disillusionment. If there's something else, will you please tell me what it is? Because I'm ambitious to know that too. I'm ambitious to experience that as well. I'm ambitious for that feeling as well. Tom Brady, the former star quarterback for the New England Patriots, is an example of the elusiveness of happiness. Perhaps you've seen this two-minute clip that I'm getting ready to show you in years past. I mean, here's a guy who had it all. Fame, fortune, relationships, stardom, athleticism, and multiple Super Bowl rings. Yet at the end of the day, none of it did the trick. None of it met the deepest longings and desires of his soul. Let me let you hear it from his own lips. You've got three Super Bowl rings. You've been voted most valuable player in two of those Super Bowls. Uh, you're probably the most glamorous player in the NFL. But it hasn't always been like that, right? It hasn't always been easy. No, I mean, it's, it's never come easy for me. It's never, I don't think my mind allows me to rest ever or for things to come easy because I, I have, I think, a, a chip on my shoulder um, and some deep, Scars that I don't think will heal because I was always the person who was always trying to And I know everybody has these stories of hardships, but I was always the one that no one ever picked That was the backup quarterback on a freshman team that didn't win a game. I only played My second year because my best friend who's the quarterback who started ahead of me. He quit playing And then finally I get my chance my junior year to play and we go six and four my senior year we go five and five and I'm recruited to go to Michigan Yep. You were the seventh-ranked quarterback there when you came in, right? Yep. You thought you might not play. I thought I might not play. I thought, you know, I, I didn't know if I'd be continue to play football. So here you are playing in the NFL. Yeah. And you keep winning. And you end up in the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. Have you always been this good and nobody recognized it? Or what happened? It's not like I can point to any one thing that says this is when it happened or it's not like I was a bad football player in high school. I just wasn't good enough to be mentioned with the bad. And it wasn't like I was a bad football player in college. I just wasn't good enough to be mentioned with some of it. And I think I came into a great situation here. I think it's been a great coach, a great owner, and great teammates. And what this team has needed, I feel like I can provide. There are some people in some people around the league, sports writers, players, coaches that think you're probably no better than the fourth or fifth best quarterback in the NFL. 
where would you rank yourself? Oh, that's the worst question in the world. That's, uh, I, I mean, putting a rank on it. I don't care whether they think I'm the best or the second best or the third best. I mean, I got three Super Bowl rings. So that speaks, hey, you can say whatever you want, but look at these diamonds on these fingers. I mean, that's, that speaks for itself. I mean, that shuts a lot of people up. Which of the rings do you like the best? What's uh, your favorite ring? My favorite ring. We always said, and I said always, the next one. The next one's the best. Which one's your favorite? Which one's the best? You got it all. His answer, the next one. The next one. Why? Because the ones I already have don't satisfy. The ones that I already have don't fill me up. The ones that I already have have left me with a deficit. They're a liability, not an asset. You see that? Pleasure didn't satisfy Solomon's soul any more than wisdom did. For last week, wisdom is vanity. Well, this week we learned that pleasure is also vanity. Look back at verse 1 there. Behold, this is also vanity. Why is the pursuit of pleasure vanity? Well, the pursuit of pleasure is vanity because the temporary euphoric feelings of pleasure disappear just as quickly as they came. Pleasure is Havel. All is vanity. Wisdom is Havel. Pleasure is Havel. When you set out to consume as much pleasure as you can, you will soon find out that pleasure and all of the feelings that are associated with it are like a wisp of vapor or a puff of wind or a mere breath. They're nothing that you can get your hands on. They're elusive. They're ephemeral. They're temporal. Although the pursuit of pleasure and happiness seem to hold out the promise of purpose, fulfillment, and security, pleasure vanishes like a mist. And it left Solomon empty-handed and empty-hearted, just like Tom Brady. Just like Tom Brady. So that we don't think that Solomon cut his hedonistic experiment short and didn't give pleasure a fair chance... Solomon's going to take verses 2 through 10, the next eight verses, to outline and to reflect upon his efforts to find something lasting and something durable in the pursuit of pleasure. Something significant in the pursuit of happiness. And so we'll look at verses 2 through 10 here, which depicts Solomon giving full vent to his desires. We see first the purpose of Solomon. He set out to find out if pleasure would fulfill him. And then he gives us the answer already. You notice that? Solomon gives us the answer before he tells us what his plan was. He's already told us that, that pursuing pleasure as ultimate, pursuing pleasure as being pinnacle or paramount is vanity. It's hell. But he's going to go ahead now and extrapolate. He's going to go ahead and give us a sneak peek into exactly what he pursued. And so secondly here, write this down in your outline, we see Solomon's plan. We saw his purpose, first of all, to find pleasure, the quest for pleasure and happiness, and now we see his plan as it is outlined for us. We see his plan. Look at verse 2 in your Bible there. Solomon says, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? 
First, Solomon experiments with comedy here. He runs out of the prestigious university, that was last week, where wisdom and learning and knowledge was the pursuit, and now he is in search of comedy in the downtown bar. He runs out of the university library, and he runs into the comedy bar here in search of laughter. What Solomon is describing here is fun and games. It's a life of fun and games through a steady stream of entertainers like comedians and clowns and plays and shows. All the stuff that can bring about a little bit of lightheartedness to your life and a chuckle. Steve Perry, lead singer for Journey, writes this. Let me know if you know the song after the fact. He pins circus life under the big top world. We all need the clowns to make us laugh. We all need the clowns to make us laugh. We all tend to insulate ourselves with some sort of humor and amusement. Solomon discovered that when it comes to purpose and significance, the purpose and significance of our existence, laughter is a useless pleasure. It doesn't bring lasting satisfaction. It's not durable. It's not lasting. It's Havel. It's here, and then it's quickly gone. A comedian and actor, Will Ferrell, once called stand-up a hard and lonely and vicious business. Its practitioners are often thought to be flawed personality, full of anger and unhappiness, driven by inexplicable demons into drugs and alcohol. I mean, the list of unhappy comedians goes on and on and on and on. Just do a Google search. I mean, you can read the quotes. Sometimes the ones that make us laugh the most inwardly laugh the least. I can't help but think about one of the most brilliant actors and impromptu comedians, though he wasn't always clean. Okay, I'm not, this is not a wholesale endorsement here. But a brilliant actor, an impromptu comedian, Robin Williams, who tragically took his own life in 2014. Sometimes, sometimes the ones who make us laugh the most inwardly laugh the least. Solomon isn't aiming to depreciate a healthy sense of humor here. We're not trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater here. Solomon's not condemning humor or a good sense of humor, a healthy sense of humor. Rather, he's highlighting the fact that amusement, even in heavy doses, doesn't bring lasting satisfaction. I mean, laughter is like temporary insanity, right? You see something that's funny, you hear a funny joke, you watch something, you're, you're giggling with friends, and, and all of a sudden, I mean, you almost get this belly laugh where now you're chuckling and they're chuckling, and, and you can't even see straight because your eyes are closed, and then your, your eyes start to water, and then you don't even know what you're laughing at after a few minutes. It's just the fact that something is funny. Laughter can be contagious. But try to explain to someone the next day how funny the thing was that you thought was funny right then. They're going to look at you like, huh? And how many times have I experienced that with my, my wife or my kids? I think something is hilarious, and I come home and I recount it, and they're like, what's the point, Dad? And I'm like, I was crying. It was so funny. Laughter is like temporary insanity. Feels good for a moment. We even kind of lose control. That's that belly laugh. 
Sometimes our laughter is so great again that it brings tears, but the net measure is that the feeling associated with laughter does not last. In Proverbs chapter 14, Solomon, again, just as Andy said this morning, I am persuaded that uh, Solomon wrote Proverbs, but Proverbs chapter 14, verse 13, Solomon pens these words. He says, even in laughter, the heart may ache, and at the end of it, it may actually be grief. The New Living Translation, which I don't study, it's a paraphrase, but I want you to hear the same verse in the New Living Translation. Again, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 13, laughter can conceal a heavy heart. But when the laughter ends, the grief remains. Laughter can conceal or hide a heavy heart. But when the laughter ends, the grief remains. That's what Solomon is saying here. Rather than face life as it is, the merrymaker drowns the hard facts in a sea of frivolity. Solomon finds laughter unable to keep him amused and therefore unable to satisfy. Solomon says it's madness, it's folly. Laughter, laughter does not satisfy. Uh, Write this down if you're taking notes. Secondly, alcohol, verse 3. Solomon says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Solomon tried laughter. And secondly, he tries alcohol. He tries to cheer himself, to cheer his body with wine. Now, you should know here that commentators debate whether Solomon is cheering himself with wine as a connoisseur of fine drink, uh, like he's got the platter of cheese there and the really expensive olives that taste like dirt, uh, and, and he's, he's got a, a, a glass of fine, expensive wine, only that which the, which the, the most money can buy. Some commentators think that Solomon here is is testing himself with wine as a connoisseur, kind of the the finer things of life, kind of the uppity up here. Some suggest that Solomon used wine under control, and they highlight the phrase, my heart was still guiding me with wisdom. This would be kind of the connoisseur. My heart is still guiding me with wisdom, and I'm just testing myself to see if I can cheer my body with wine. And it's a controlled experiment. Well, others suggest that Solomon was a party animal who frequently drunk like a skunk. And they highlight this phrase, how to lay hold on folly. And so the answer is, it was probably both. Solomon probably at times drank like the connoisseur. And Solomon sometimes probably let one drink lead into two drinks, lead into three drinks, lead into four. One drink is never enough. When the enjoyment of one drink wears off, another drink or a stronger drink is required to maintain the same measure of pleasure. We should be clear that the problem does not reside with wine. Let me just make a clear statement here. Matter of fact, Psalm 104 lists wine as among the good gifts of God. The psalmist writes these words. Just listen to me here. Psalm 104, 14 and 15. says, You, God, cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So wine is according to the psalmist here, in the list of those things that God has 
graciously provided. It's a part of God's good creation. The, the problem does not reside with wine. The first problem arises when we ask alcohol to be our source or our well of happiness. That, friends, is a problem. I think Solomon had a live-it-up mentality. Look at verse 3b there. Solomon wrote, Till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. And so I think here, when Solomon says, hey, I want to lay hold of folly until I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I think Solomon is acknowledging that life is short, so live it up while you can. Life is short, so live it up while you can. Some of you are old enough to remember the Schlitz Beer Company. They used this slogan back in the 70s. You only go around once in this life, for gra so grab for all the gusto you can. Even in the beer you drink, why would you settle for less? When you're out of Schlitz, you're out of beer. I mean, do you see what that marketing campaign is telling you? Here's your source of happiness. Here's your source of pleasure. And don't just grab it, but grab it with both hands. Go for all the gusto. You only go around once. And Solomon would say, you get off the merry-go-round at the same place you got on. So go for all the gusto. The second problem arises when we look to alcohol as a means of escape from reality. It's a way that many choose to transport themselves to a place that is momentarily underscore momentarily free from concern, free from responsibility, and free from accountability. It temporarily numbs and masks our failures. It numbs and masks our, our sour relationships. It numbs and masks the past or the present or our fear of the future and a thousand other dissatisfactions. But this wears off too. It wears off. Flight from our problems will only, in the end, leave us with the same gnawing dissatisfaction that we started with. Solomon, whose heart was still guiding him with wisdom, wrote these words, as a matter of fact, in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Solomon says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler. Some translations say, beer is a brawler. And then he goes on here and he says, whoever is led astray by them is not wise. To be led astray by them. To ask it to do for you what it can never and was never intended to do is unwise. It's unwise. Getting drunk for pleasure is about as bright as jumping off a 10-story building to enjoy the breeze. And I, I, I listen, I, I realize, and I am not trying to be trite, I, I realize in a congregation our size that this is a very real struggle some of us. This is real. And I'm not trying to make light of it. I'm not trying to make fun of it. I do want to highlight the folly of it, the madness of it. Again, there's nothing intrinsically evil about the wine. It's how we approach it and what we ask it to provide for us. Because that will, that will determine how you use it. That's very, very Important. Solomon came to the conclusion that wine couldn't turn off the world. Wine could not infuse any sustained happiness or give him any lasting peace. 
As Solomon stared into the glass, all he saw was the reflection of his own emptiness. Number three, architecture. Solomon was a grand architect. Look at verse four here. He said, I made great works. I built houses and I planted vineyards for myself. Solomon was an architect. He was a builder. He was a developer. He was in a position even that some of us might in the quiet of our own soul envy. We know it's not Christian to... Uh, or it's not becoming of a good Christian to, to envy the, the wealth of someone else. But in the stillness and the quiet of our own soul, sometimes we give in to this covetousness. Solomon could afford to do whatever he wanted to do whenever he wanted to do it. He had no financial or other restrictions that would have made him think, if only I could have, fill in the blank. He had none of those restrictions. Solomon's temple is known to be one of the most magnificent buildings of all time. It took 153,000 workers seven years to build it. It was a magnificent structure, breathtaking structure. However, it took Solomon 13 years to build his own house. Can you imagine what can be built with unlimited resources and 100,000 plus workers? Imagine what it would have looked like. But here's the question. Did all the beauty satisfy? No. No, it didn't. There's nothing new under the sun. A lot of people today are building bigger houses. The house that was once our dream house, we're no longer content with that. The cars that we drive, they're no longer as feature-rich in comparison as the new ones are, and so we, we, we need a better one. The boat we have isn't big enough anymore. The property size that we have, it's not expansive enough anymore, and so we need a few more acres, and so we'll just buy the acres around our house. All people live for, oftentimes, is stuff. The accumulation of stuff. And we put all of our significance in the basket of stuff, and we hope that it will provide something for us that is durable and lasting in the end. The only problem is that basket has no bottom. It's got no bottom. Solomon's looking for something to keep him entertained and distracted here from the emptiness that lurks inside. And we oftentimes do the same thing. Even as believers. We're not just talking about the, the, the vile, wicked, lost person who doesn't know Jesus savingly here. I mean, Christians, the seeds of every sin under the sun reside in your heart and my heart. And all it needs to grow is to be watered. Just give it a little bit of attention. Cultivate it a little bit. And those seeds will germinate. Jesus told us a familiar parable in Luke chapter 12. He said, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And that man thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store all my crops. And then he said, So he talks to himself again here. Solomon does the same thing. This man says to himself, Well, here's what I'll do, self. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, larger ones, and I'll store all my grain and all my goods in those barns. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, foolish, for this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Friends, not only will the works of your hands ultimately not bring lasting satisfaction, but you cannot take any of them with you when you die. 
Let me just, this is a good reminder for every single one of us, okay? It won't be long. It won't be long now until each and every one of us are gone and chances are someone else will own everything you have. Don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. We move from architecture to horticulture. Look at verses 5 and 6 here. Solomon says, I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Not only was Solomon skilled in architecture here, but he was a, a skilled in horticulture. Luxurious gardens, they were oftentimes characteristic of royalty and nobility in the ancient Near East. And so it's not surprising that Solomon would have this. Notice also the plural in each of these instances. Look back at verses 4 through 6. We see houses, plural, vineyards, plural, gardens, plural, parks, plural, trees, plural, and pools, plural. Have you ever noticed that ever since Adam was ejected from the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, man has been frantically trying to erect his own man-made paradise? You ever notice that? And it may look different for each one of us. But apart from Jesus Christ, we are all frantically rushing around like little rats trying to erect our own man-made paradise. As a matter of fact, gardens here in verse 5. I made myself gardens. That word is translated into the Greek as paradises. I made myself paradises and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. Solomon creates a secular garden of Eden here, a man-made paradise with no forbidden fruits or none that he regards as such, at least. The problem is that there is no paradise apart from God. It's all sandcastles that will quickly be taken out by the next tide. There is no, there is no paradise apart from God. It's interesting to note Southwest of Jerusalem, in a place that is seldomly visited by tourists, there exist today vast depressions in the earth, which are still called the Pools of Solomon, which he used to water the forest of trees that he planted in an effort to find satisfaction in his own heart. It's interesting. There still exist today vast depressions in the earth, which once held the water that Solomon used to irrigate his vast gardens. Yet today, those depressions are empty. Next, he moves to servants. Look at verse 7a. I bought myself male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. Not only did Solomon undertake great works, but he also had many workers. You need a lot of hired help to help you maintain the empire that you're building when your empire looks like what Solomon is building here. I mean, given the vast scope of Solomon's building projects, the expansive size of his property... He needed a massive workforce to help keep it up. I mean, we, we, we live close to a golf course, and I can watch the, the, the golf course uh, keepers mow the grass, and it is a never-ending job. You never stop mowing a golf course. Because when you get done, it's time to start again. And so oftentimes, they have multiple crews out, and it's just a continual process takes a lot of work to upkeep this expansive kingdom. 
and the size of Solomon's property. All Solomon's life, he had countless servants waiting on him hand and foot. Just take the chefs in his royal kitchen, for example. 1 Kings 4 tells us that they daily prepared 30 cores, C-O-R-S, okay, 30 cores. Uh, that is about 60 gallons for us, okay, 30 cores, 60 gallons, so 30 times 6 of what? Of fine, or of fine flour, and then they prepared 60 cores, again, of 60 gallons of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deers, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. I mean, th this, is, this is just the chefs in Solomon's kitchen. And this doesn't even touch the grounds here. So Solomon has servants. And Solomon also has livestock. Look at verse 7b. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than anyone who had been before me in Jerusalem. To own large herds of livestock was a display of status and wealth, and Solomon certainly had it. Matter of fact, in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon offered to the Lord as a peace offering 22,000 cattle, 120,000 sheep and goats. These were all brought for the dedication of the temple of the Lord. Solomon had massive, massive uh, livestock groupings. Write this down. Solomon had gold and silver and lots of it. Look at verse 8. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I mean, Solomon was filthy rich. Filthy rich. Some of his wealth came from taxation levied off of his subjects, and some of it came from foreign tribute from neighboring potentates. Neighboring leaders, all of Solomon's drinking cups, as a matter of fact, 1 Kings tells us, were made of solid gold. All the utensils in the palace were solid gold. They weren't made of silver. As a matter of fact, silver was considered worthless in Solomon's day. 1 Kings 10.27 tells us that Solomon made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. Worthless. Worthless. As common as stone. You know, we're all aware of the old saying, money can't buy happiness. But in all reality, many of us would love the opportunity to try and prove that wrong. There's a story of a wealthy industrialist who was disturbed to find a fisherman sitting lazily behind his boat. Here's a wealthy industrialist. He's walking along the dock, and he sees what he thinks is a lazy fisherman sitting beside his boat. And so the industrialist says, why aren't you out there fishing, he asked. The fisherman says, because I've caught enough fish for today. And so the industrialist says, well, then why don't you catch more fish than you need? The fisherman says, well, what would I do with them? The rich man says, well, you can earn more money. And you can buy a better boat, a bigger boat, so you can go deeper and catch more fish. You could purchase nylon nets and catch even more fish. You would make even more money. There'd be even more profit. Soon you'd have a fleet of boats and you'd be as rich like me, the fisherman said. Or the industrialist said, rather. The fisherman asks, well, then what would I do? After I have all of that, after I have the bigger and the better boats and the nylon nets and I catch more fish and I make more money, then what, I, what, what would I do? And the rich industrialist said, well, then you can sit down and enjoy life. And the fisherman replied, what do you think I'm doing? What do you think I'm doing? Actor and former California governor 
Arnold Schwarzenegger once said, money doesn't make you happy. I've got 50 million now, and I was just as happy when I had 48. It's the next ring. It's the next ring. Solomon had musicians. Look back at verse A there. I got singers, both men and women. I mean, not only could Solomon go to the concert, but the concert came to him. The concert came to him. Solomon had musicians and singers that played and sang for his pleasure and at his delight, but all the melodies brought no peace to his heart. They couldn't satisfy. They couldn't satisfy. Uh, Solomon goes on and he mentions concubines here. Verse 8, I had many concubines that the light of the sons of man. Here's a man who had inexhaustible, erotic, sensual experiences right at his fingertips, right at his disposal, whenever he wanted it. A thousand women available to him any time of the day or night. Surely that ended his search for satisfaction, didn't it? No. What it ended was his close relationship with God. But it did not end his quest for purpose and significance. It only left him bored, empty, and frustrated. Several years ago, there was an article in Christianity Today about Hugh Hefner. Hefner took uh, promiscuity and the sexual revolution to a whole new level. But yet the author explained that Hefner was left completely desensitized due to excess. Did nothing for him sad. What a glaring example of the futility of immorality. And then you see universal reputation. Write that down. Universal reputation, verse 9. So I became great and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. I mean, Solomon was an icon. He was known worldwide. He was a celebrity. If Solomon were living today, he would have been on the front page of GQ, People, Better Homes and Gardens, Forbes, Time, Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair, and Fortune magazines. I mean, he would have been the centerfold in all of those, on the front cover of all of those. But the limelight we crave gets old once it's acquired. We think, oh, I want that. I look at that person, that celebrity, and I see the car they're driving and the things they have and their possessions and their homes and their lifestyle. Many of today's celebrities now resent the attention that their reputation has brought to them. What was once a delight now is a heavy burden. It leaves many delusioned and depressed, not satisfied. And then we see total indulgence. Just absolutely throw caution to the wind. I'm all in. Shove the chips forward. Look at verse 10. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep them from me. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. You see, in his pursuit of pleasure, Solomon denies himself nothing. Whatever he saw, that thing, he took it. Whatever he was tempted to indulge in, whatever fleshly pleasure, he gave in. He denied himself nothing, not visibly or inwardly entertaining. But as Solomon stood back and surveyed all his work, he felt empty. For a moment, Solomon seems satisfied. He even says here for a second, he says, I felt a sense of inward reward. I mean, it's that, that, it's that sense of momentary reward that after you've built all the mansions and after you've, you've installed all the gardens and all the sprinkler systems and, and all, you have all the pleasures and delight of man, you sit back in your chair and you're like, 
But then another project comes to mind. And all of a sudden, all you have is not satisfying anymore. And Solomon said, I had a temporary sense of reward here. And Solomon rubbed his eyes and he blinked and it was all gone. He saw his work for what it truly was, vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit in any of his labors because not a single square inch of it would remain when he was gone. And not only would a single square, image of not, square inch of it not remain when he was gone, but somebody else would own it. It's been said that success is full of promise until you get it, and then it's last year's nest from which the birds have flown. What happens to people who pursue pleasure, any pleasure and every pleasure as their main passion in life? If happiness, the pursuit of happiness, is your ultimate goal, well, those people are the opposite of 2 Corinthians 6.10 people. 2 Corinthians 6.10, having nothing yet possessing everything. Well, people who pursue happiness and pleasure as being ultimate are the opposite of that. They outwardly seem to possess everything, yet they really possess nothing. They're left empty. Empty. Well, let's land the plane here and talk about Solomon's perception for just a couple brief minutes. We've seen his purpose, which was the quest for pleasure. We saw his plan, all the places that Solomon looked for pleasure under the sun. And now we have the conclusion of it all. What's, what's Solomon's perception when everything is said and done? Well, he tells us clearly in verse 11. Look at these words. Then I considered... All that my hands had done and all the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was a vanity and a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. You see, what, what Solomon does here in verse 11 is he comes to the morning after the night before. The phrase, then I considered, is actually one Hebrew word which means, then I faced. That's the literal translation here. Your translation says, then I considered or something like it. A literal translation of the Hebrew word pone is, then I faced. When the dust of Solomon's search for lasting pleasure had settled, and he turned and faced reality, he was empty. He was empty. The same verdict that was passed on wisdom is now passed on pleasure. Solomon's pile up of terms here in verse 11. Look at them. All was vanity. Uh, on top of that, it's like a striving after the wind. On, on top of that, there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This pile up of terms conveys bitter disillusionment. The journey brought temporal pleasure, but the destination brought lasting pain. And I can't, I can't, I can't help but to think about Jesus' words in Mark 8.36 when he asks, For what does it profit a man? To gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul. Friends, we have just as many opportunities as Solomon had to indulge in sinful, selfish pleasure. We have just as many opportunities. We live in fine homes. We lounge on nice furniture. We can control the climate of, of our homes with electronics and our voice. We dine at fine establishments. We watch feature films. We listen to a wider variety of music. As far as sensuality is concerned, there is an endless parade of virtual partners only a few clicks away, a harem for the imagination. Don't go there. Don't go there. But we have just as many opportunities to indulge in the sinful, selfish seeking of pleasure. Everything is offered to us, nothing is unavailable. But we have to ask, for all that we have and all that we have access to, are we satisfied? 
No. No, we're not. According to the most recent CDC statistics, 1.4 million Americans attempted suicide in 2018, and 48,000 were successful. Suicide is the second leading cause of death uh, for the age range 10 to 34. It is the fourth leading cause of death in ages 35 through 54. Are we satisfied? I think the numbers tell a different story. They tell a different story. Friends, a cup of pleasure today requires a gallon of pleasure tomorrow to keep you happy. If you live for pleasure alone, enjoyment will decrease unless the intensity of pleasure increases. And you've got to constantly live that way. The amount of your happiness, the amount of your pleasure will decrease unless the intensity of your search and your pursuit increases. The higher a person builds the wall of self-gratification, the deeper becomes the reservoir of his or her need. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't satisfy. Pleasure, if it is sought as ultimate, will prove to be a dead-end street. It promises much, but it delivers little. One drink is never enough. One sexual encounter is never enough. One contest won is never enough. One project accomplished is never enough. The human desire for pleasure is insatiable. To keep it content, you have to go further, longer, higher, and deeper. A sin will take you farther than you're willing to go. It will keep you longer than you're willing to stay. And it will cost you more than you are willing to pay. And so what's the answer? Well, all Tom Brady could come up with was, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Pleasure seekers are never pleasure keepers unless they find their pleasure in Christ alone. Let me repeat that. If you don't get anything from the rest of the message, just get that one sentence, okay? Pleasure seekers are never pleasure keepers unless they find their pleasure in Christ alone. He alone is the bread of life that satisfies your hunger. He alone is the wellspring of life, the, the, the spring of living water that satisfies your soul, your thirst. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know this Jesus? We're all hungry and we're all thirsty. Our souls are a hunger and thirst factory. You woke up with hungers and thirst this morning and you will go to bed with hungers and thirst this evening. But Jesus says... If you come to me, I will satisfy your hunger and quench your thirst. All of them. All of them. Everything Solomon pursued, Jesus was tempted by, yet glory be to God, he resisted without sin. Friends, the psalmist declares, and I want to leave us with this verse this morning. Speaking about God, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Pleasure seekers are never pleasure keepers unless they find their pleasure in Christ alone. If I find within myself desires in which this world cannot satisfy, and I have plenty of them and so do you, the only probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Such challenging, convicting, uh, stirring, soul-stirring content here in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Father, I pray that you would use your word uh, exactly as you have intended. You are the divine author. I pray that my words in communicating the text would have been fruitful to your people in feeding them this morning. 
Father, would you cause us to look more like Jesus, to be less connected to this world. We do not want to be connected to this world. Help us to set our minds on things above, not on things of earth. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then we will appear with him in glory. Do not love the world or anything in it. If we love the world, we do not love Jesus Christ. Help us, help us, Lord, to be crucified to the world, that we might live for Christ in his glory alone. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.